From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. You know, part of the reason we chose to go down the path of direct energy deposition is because of the flexibility. Uh, with this technology, you are blowing metallic powder where you need it. Um, so you are not limited to building up on just a flat substrate. Uh, you can build on, um, you know, curved substrates or existing parts if you're doing a repair application. Uh, so we, we blow the powder and there's a laser and the laser creates a melt pool in the substrate and you're essentially blowing that uh, metallic powder into that melt pool and then the part can build up layer by layer. That was Melanie Lang. Melanie is the co-founder and CEO of Form Alloy. Prior to Form Alloy, Melanie had over 15 years experience as an engineer and program manager with Lockheed Martin and Boeing. She holds a BS in aerospace engineering from the University of Illinois and an MS in systems architecture and engineering from the University of Southern California. In addition to her role at Form Alloy, Melanie serves as a Women in 3D Printing Ambassador and as an active member of the America Makes Executive Committee. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. All right, Melanie, thank you so much for joining the show today. I'm excited for the conversation and hearing your story in the additive space. Um, so like we do with all of our guests, um, we start early on at the beginning. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of where you're from, where you grew up, kind of what your childhood was like to kind of get you down the path <laughs> of ultimately ending up in additive. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. Um, I know I've been listening to your podcast for a while, so I'm excited to be on it finally. Um, I grew up in Illinois uh, in a very small small community, small town. So all the the benefits and challenges with, with small town. But one thing I always loved when I was growing up was space. So I had a telescope. I would I would uh, look at stars, um, do a little bit of study of uh, astronomy, as you can do as a as a child, and was really into science and um, and that sort of led me to uh, pursue aerospace engineering for undergrad. And uh, I really thought that I would spend my career, you know, designing uh, rockets and propulsion systems. And I really had a passion for commercial space travel. Now, this was the early 2000s. So it was before uh, that was actually being done. Uh, so I think all that's uh, pretty amazing. So I've just always had sort of a love and, and passion for, for space. Um, and I had an opportunity out of college to go uh, do some work with uh, Boeing and then Lockheed Martin and uh, work as an aerospace engineer. Although I wasn't really working yet on space projects, I kind of thought I would make my way over there at some point, but was very uh, also content doing some algorithm development and that kind of thing on some other projects. Uh, but what I realized uh, is something that I loved more than technology was people and working with people. And so I didn't see myself, um, you know, sitting as a at my desk as an individual contrib contributor. Uh, I saw myself uh, as I progressed in my career being more of a, uh, a team leader, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing, and just really more focusing on the people aspect of things. And so um, I started doing more in program management and then ended up doing a lot of work in capture management and business development where you're actually 
uh, formulating proposals and then a win plan to go win the work and then working with the customer to get it started up. So that was a really, uh, really great career and enjoyed really every minute of it and um, both great companies to work for. So um, I started getting into the additive space then as a hobbyist. And this is like the, you know, 2010 timeframe. And, you know, at the time it was just more of a, an interest. I started going to a couple maker fairs and uh, just started thinking, hey, this is a pretty cool technology and started playing with it a little bit at home. And uh, my husband and I built this little uh, polymer 3D printer uh, just for fun. And, um, and we did that just for a couple of years without really thinking much of it other than, yeah, we're kind of part of this maker movement and maker space and we can make these neat little knickknacks out of plastic at home. Well, at the same time, I have all these projects going on at work and uh, particularly with some new opportunities. And one of the biggest challenges wasn't just the hard technology part that you think of as being a challenge. It was getting components to the right place at the right time and the entire sustainment tail. And how do you model that? How do you support that? And what are the risks associated with the entire supply chain? And to me, that's when a light bulb started to go off because I could go to my house and more or less print whatever I wanted, albeit out of plastic. Uh, but it really started me thinking, you know, there, this is a, a viable solution to some of these supply chain challenges in aerospace and defense. Uh, and that's when I started changing my focus to metal technologies and started investigating the different metal technologies. And as you might know, at Form Alloy, we specialize in direct and energy deposition. And uh, what led me to that technology is uh, that you have the ability to build parts, you can repair parts, and you can enhance components through a multi-material solution. So to me, when I have this whole supply chain tail uh, challenge in my mind, it was an excellent technology to go... Um, you know, really uh, continue to commercialize and, um, you know, get into some of these hard use cases. So kind of going back a little bit to one of your early comments on kind of gravitating more towards the people part of your job and what was it that appealed to you specifically in terms of managing people or kind of building teams within the work that you were doing? Well, I just thought it was really interesting that if I were was able to bounce my ideas off of a larger group, the idea would really morph and change and usually end up way better than it had started with with a with a single person. So that was really interesting to me and something I hadn't really, you know, thought of before. Um, and then I was also working with uh, a pretty diverse group of in individuals. Actually, I was working on a uh, an international program, so I had. Uh, people from different backgrounds and all different ages uh, kind of working together. And I just thought it was really interesting, like learning about team dynamics and um, just that a lot of problems that we think might be a technical problem is actually more of a people problem just in terms of training or personalities or making people comfortable with change. So um, that was really interesting to me. And then I also, you know, I just think relationships and human connection is so important. And um, you know, if I'm at my desk as an individual contributor, not interacting with people, I'm missing out on a big part of the human experience for me. Um, so that's that's kind of what led me to want to pursue a career that was not only technically focused, but also people focused. And that's a good transition. So what was, so you mentioned kind of your experience at Boeing and Lockheed kind of in this aerospace sector. And what was, what were the steps that kind of led to form alloy? 
you could dive into that in a little bit more detail. Sure. Well, I continued to uh, to work at Lockheed while I was uh, sort of pursuing this additive space, you know, first as a hobbyist and then looking at it more seriously and uh, had to take the leap of faith at all, as all entrepreneurs do at some point and say, this is a, a viable solution. Um, I took one of our machines, our, our first working prototype to uh, Rapid in 2016, and we got uh, significant positive feedback and even some orders for some parts and things and some research projects. Uh, so to me, that was a great signal that uh, this is the technology that people need and they're looking for as they as they try to expand, you know, size or throughput or multi-material type solutions. And so talk about those early days and kind of developing the machine and kind of the concept. What, what was that like? What were kind of the uh, the pitfalls, what were the challenges, what were you kind of, what were your early business models that you had in mind as you started down the entrepreneurial path? Yeah. I mean, there's a, a lot of challenges for sure uh, starting up. Uh, so one was uh, having resources, both time and uh, financial uh, to go buy these components and, and start playing around with things. And, you know, that was really overcome by uh having very good uh, time management skills and not having too much of a social life uh, for the first couple of years uh, and, and just really cutting costs wherever possible. So the first prototype started to be built in my laundry room. And at one point, uh, all of us had run into it and had some type of injury from either running into the machine or bumping into it or something. And that's when we decided to go rent a, a little 700 square foot um, glorified garage essentially uh, to to take it a little bit further. Uh, so uh, you know and, and cash continue to be a challenge you know as a new business um, but that's why we we're thankful for some of the companies that were early to take this technology and want to do some research with it and they, they thought that we had something really special with our approach which was not just to have a, a person that stands at the machine and has to have you know all these details and stop it and be measuring but have a lot of in situ monitoring control that can make the machine run uh, repeatably and uh, with some ease of use. So you don't have to have a, you know, a PhD or material scientist running the machine. Uh, and people like that approach, because if you think about taking this technology and scaling it, you have to look at the total business case, which includes the cost of labor to run the machine. And then, you know, how much interaction the operator has to have with the machine in order to you know, make it a very repeatable process. Uh, so that sort of helped us kick it off the ground and, you know, fund it on the early days. Um, but we were a, a two to two and a half person company, you know, for the first two years or so. And then once we started selling machines, we were able to hire a couple people every time we sold a, another machine. And uh, that let us have a small staff. And then we went through a series, a, a series A uh, in 2019. And that allowed us to really accelerate our, our hiring and our growth. So I'm always fascinated by kind of that first customer that you get. Um, can you talk about that? I mean, you don't have to name specifics if it's uh, confidential or anything, but kind of the those early conversations, like how how did it end up leading to someone sending you a check? Yeah, well, I, I can say that one of our first uh, projects was with NASA. Um, and I think if Starting small. In a, yeah, if you're working in a, if you're working in a space that uh, 
that NASA is interested in, um, you know, they have a lot of ways to get a project funded. Um, and, and we used a couple different um, paths to, to get funding from NASA and other government agencies, including the SBIR and STTR program. Um, we were uh, had another grant, another type of NASA grant that we were funded. And then we also did uh, just small, very small purchases, which was the very first way we started working with them. So we were doing very small uh, projects that you know people were putting on their credit card because they were under the limit of what you would do a, a contract. Uh, and so um, I just think the willingness to adapt what they wanted to do, they said, hey, we have this new material we want you to try. And we said, sure, we'll, we'll try it. Um, so I think you have to be willing to take risk and you have to be willing to, to say, to say yes to things to help, you know, meet the customer's challenge and then really listen to what they're saying. So when we start out, we thought we would only sell machines and we would not do, um, really any R and D projects or services. But what we realized from listening to our customers is that, uh, they like it when we start doing work for them. And then they have time to do some analysis on it and build up a business case and then bring the technology in house when they're ready. Um, and so that was something that we sort of learned also from those early days. And that's probably helpful from a small business cash flow perspective, right? Because I mean, a sales cycle for a machine is long, right? And it's a big payoff at the end, but to, to fund the business, to put food on the table in a practical sense, right? It's, it, right. That that timing is always daunting for a for an entrepreneur. Absolutely, and, and that's challenging because if you if you go pitch to investors, they want you to be laser focused, and and I don't just mean laser focused as in metal additive or DED, but what exactly are you doing in that space? So if we go into our pitch and we say, oh, and we're going to build machines, and we're going to build OEM solutions, and we're going to build services, and then they say, well, you have two and a half people, and you have no funding. How are you going to do that? So. Um, it's always, it's, it's a delicate balance because you have to keep the lights on. And so we were doing these R and D projects. And of course we're learning from that and learning about our customer challenges while we're doing that. But at the same time, we have to stay somewhat focused, uh, in order to start the conversations with investors about fundraising. So, um, I think that's probably a pretty delicate balance that all entrepreneurs go through where you have to, you have to do what you can to keep the lights on, but you also have to have a strong business plan and case and, have a focus so you can get to the ultimate goal that you want to, which for us was to be able to sell machines. And was going down the venture funding route always in kind of the back of your mind and in kind of the planning for, um, for, for the company. Yes. And I think it, it takes a lot longer, I think, than people, than people realize. And even that I realized, um, but we started talking about, you know, in the future, we'll fundraise just to sort of keep people interested in what we were doing uh, but we did want to hold off as long as possible. So it's another one of these balanced things where you want to get people excited about your technology and you want to talk about it, but you don't want to raise funds too early uh, because I think one, it's important to know what you really want to do first um, before you get that funding. And then also the longer you can hold off, the more control you can maintain over, over your destiny and over your company. Um, and then of course, the type of investor is very important too uh, when you're when you're considering that. Did you have some metrics for yourself of when you felt ready to go to that point in time? Uh, not really when I set out, you know, it was, it was sort of, you know, I was thinking when we started out, oh, we'll probably fund and raise in a year or so, you know, close around in 18 to 24 months. And it ended up being about three and a half years um, since founding, since we actually did that. Um, and that's because we were able to 
continue to, you know, make a footprint in the market and get machines out there. And, and we were, we were on a, a pretty steady growth path. Then we got to the point where, you know, we kind of said we need to scale a little more and we need to be able to hire a, a chunk of people. We have some good revenue. We have some good traction in the market. So it was just sort of all the timing kind of worked out um, to do that. And I, I think the other important part of that is when, you, when you're fundraising, you don't want it to be a fire sale in terms of we're about to go out of business. And so we have to do this round. I think if, if you can plan to close your round, you know, six months before you would get to that point, then you don't have to take a bad deal. You can say no, because just as important as it is for the investor to find a good fit is for you to find a good fit with your investor, because they're likely going to sit on your board and uh, provide direction and sometimes even approval for what you're doing. So if you can have that balance of waiting long enough to raise funds to have the timing be right, but not be in a point where you're in a, uh, a bad situation and you have to raise, that's sort of the ideal time to raise. Can you talk a little bit about how did you transfer kind of your love of the people side of the, the business at Lockheed and, and Boeing and some of the, the skills you gained there into now, hey, you've got your own company, you control its destiny how you build your team is a very important step in, in that. So how did that end up playing out over the, some of those early days? Yeah, I think uh, in the early days, it was a little bit more challenging because we were, you know, so limited on, on funding. So we were using interns as much as possible, uh, which was, which was a great way to kind of get started because we get um, assistance at a lower labor rate than you would an experienced professional. And then they get experience in an up and coming field. Uh, and some of our interns have come back and worked for us full time, which has been nice as well. Um, but that was one way that we did that. Um, in terms of, you know, preparation for, you know, running a company, I think if you have that big company experience or even small company experience, and you've gone through, you know, challenging, you know, challenging times and, um, maybe, uh, some training sessions on, you know, teamwork and, and sales and that kind of thing that you might get from a bigger company. I think that can really help you if you're going to set out on your own journey. But um, I don't think anything can really properly prepare you uh, completely um, for the journey. So I think it's important to have really good, you know, mentors and a support system that can kind of, you can bounce ideas off of because I had, you know, basically 15 years of of training and experience in, you know, some of the biggest, best companies that you can work for. Uh, and there's still many aspects that, you know, we, I definitely wasn't fully prepared for or had any experience with. Sure. And so as the, I guess, actually, maybe one thing to maybe take a, a step back on for, so there's a wide range of people that listen to these episodes. So um, maybe, can we dive into the the technology a little bit more just for those who may not be familiar with DED and what does that mean and, and how does your system work and kind of compare it to some of the other systems that might be on the market on the metal side? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I mentioned, you know, part of the reason we chose to go down the path of direct energy deposition is because of the flexibility. Uh, with this technology, you are blowing metallic powder where you need it. Um, so you are not limited to building up on just a flat substrate. Uh, you can build on, um, you know, curved substrates or existing parts if you're doing a repair application. Uh, so we, we blow the powder 
and there's a laser and the laser creates a melt pool in the substrate and you're essentially blowing that uh, metallic powder into that melt pool and then the part can build up layer by layer. Uh, so with that, you can do uh, multi-materials in a single build um, because we're just uh, basically feeding powder in and the, the machine doesn't necessarily care which powder you're feeding in. Uh, so that becomes really interesting for, like I mentioned at the beginning, enhanced performance components where, you know, you might have something that's copper and Inconel or stainless and Inconel uh, or um, maybe aluminum and uh, stainless. So you can work with a, a really wide range of materials with this process and uh, also you know, combining uh, different alloys together. Um, and then of course, custom alloys, which is sort of another specialty thing that we do at Form Alloy, which is a specialty equipment that's designed for alloy development and functionally graded materials. Uh, so that's something that's uh, distinguished us a little bit. We, we sort of heard from our customers uh, some of the frustrations early on with Metal AM is is uh, sort of the, the limited set of materials that could be run with it. And of course, now that's changed, you know. Um, so there's there's a lot more, but just material flexibility in terms of being able to change materials or being able to uh, even work with custom alloys um, where customers might want, they might want to define what they want the properties to be for the material. And uh, you're really not limited anymore, you know, with this process to you know, traditional alloys that are that are available. You can really define what you want your requirements to be, how you want your part to perform, and then design an alloy based off of that. Sure. Um, the other sort of technology aspect that differentiates us, uh, like I mentioned, is uh, we're very focused on uh, process monitoring and control so that uh, more of a, a machine tool operator can run the machines and it's not going to require a, a material scientist to run the machine. And in fact, in-house, when we do our, our work, we have... Uh, we have machine operators that run our machines. Uh, and, you know, it's important to be able to uh, control that and, and not have a lot of operator interaction because every time your operator touches your machine or, or makes a change, uh, that process is no longer repeatable because you will not be able to repeat exactly what that operator did or how they did it or when they did it. Uh, so we have some technology in place to, to handle that. Um, so those are some of the differentiators and, and uh, the basic technology overview. It always blows my mind about how many moving parts there are, I mean, literally and figuratively with building a machine business, right? Like you've got to get physical hardware to work. There's software, there's materials, obviously. But then like, as you get past that point where you're selling machines, it's just as much about supporting the customer and making sure that they feel like they're being heard and they can get their problems solved. And, and so how has there, how has that transition been over the, the progression of the company? Was it, is, has that been a big issue or there have there been other things that have come up that like, as you, you focus so much on getting that first couple machines to work really well. And then you're like, Oh, but it, it doesn't end once it goes out the door. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think continuous improvement is and, and innovation is always important. And, um, you know, when our machines go out the door, that doesn't mean that there will not be any innovation, you know, happening on those machines. Uh, we have uh, many times gone back when we have a new technology that comes available, uh, like a new uh, mode of uh, in situ monitoring and control. 
we can go back and add those to some of the previous systems that we have. So we do keep that in mind when we're developing new technologies is uh, the backward compatibility um, with the prior machines. So that way a customer that has maybe a baseline model from a few years ago can still be running the latest and greatest. Uh, and one good example of that is the new powder feeder that we released called the alloy development feeder, which is a 16 hopper system. So that allows you to deposit different alloy variations very quickly, which you can use for development uh, or you can use for like functionally graded components. So we made that uh, backwards compatible by having a standalone version. So it would basically just sit on the outside of the machine and feed powder in that way. Uh, and that's that's really how we how we try to do things. Uh, so that way, you know, we want our customers to continue to be, you know, cutting edge and have the latest and greatest technologies. Uh, so that's um, sort of always something that we look at when, when we're developing. And what have been some of your favorite customer projects or customer kind of uh, applications that you can speak about? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, you know, aerospace person at heart still. So anytime we get to work with any of the, aerospace companies or commercial space companies, uh, especially those companies that are um, sort of providing new access to space, you know, so all the, the new space uh, activity that's going on. That's so exciting to me because that's been something that has been a passion of mine for so long. So I always love the aerospace projects. Uh, but the other thing uh, that that gets me really excited is we, we get these projects of things that I would have never thought of in a million years. And, you know, and that, and that kind of gets down to the, the people side and the importance of diversity of thought in uh, teams. Um, you know, we have these things come in and they're awesome, awesome applications and we would have just never thought of them. And so I think that's important to um, sort of be able to have that open dialogue with your customers. And, and we have meetings, you know, multiple times a week with new customers that are just sort of asking questions and exploratory and it's, it's awesome when the light bulb goes off for these applications you would have never thought of in sporting goods or electronics or, you know, something that's so far away from aerospace. So, I mean, as a small company making a machine in 3D printing space with a lot, I mean, it, it, it's not a huge amount of established players, but there are certainly a number of established names like what were some of your strategies to kind of get your name out there, kind of meet people, start to get engaged with customers um, and, and kind of get over that kind of uh, startup hump almost as like just name recognition alone or kind of being the, the, the new, new person on the block. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that was a big challenge. Uh, I think first and foremost, you have to have a technology that can speak for itself. Uh, because you're not going to have a big marketing budget. You know, some of these larger companies, they can spend, you know, 25% or, or more um, just on, on marketing. And, you know, we had to take a very uh, grassroots approach to marketing. And we had to have a technology that was uh, important enough where people would want to come write about us and talk to us, you know, and, and have us on podcasts like these, because what we were doing was really interesting. So I think that's first and foremost, you have to have something that's, that's good and that's interesting and that's solving a, a customer problem. And then I think the second part of it is just back to that human side and, and building relationships with people and taking the time to network and building a community. And um, I consider uh, many people from this added manufacturing community as friends, um, even people that work for competitors, uh, we talk on a, a weekly, if not daily basis, um, you know, not about, we're not 
you know, sharing IP, but just building those relationships and networking because people will will move around in this industry, uh, especially as it, you know, still somewhat emerging and growing. And so I think it's really important. And uh, people will also remember uh, the relationships that you formed if they're if they're meaningful and genuine. And when they move to a different place, they might have been a competitor and now they work for a customer. And now you're doing work with someone that used to be your competitor, um, but they choose to work with you instead of the company that they left because they appreciate first the technology and then and then second the relationship. And so I think those are both really important things to foster. And how have you changed over the time of, of kind of starting the company, both in terms of kind of what you do on a daily basis, but maybe just a 30,000 foot view in terms of your priorities and, and how you think about the added manufacturing space and running a company and being a small business owner? Yeah, I think, I think I've changed a lot. I think I used to be able to have a, a very detailed plan and execute the plan and there might be some slight deviations and I think what I've learned is uh, in a small business, there's a lot of things, especially over the past couple of years, that you can't expect and you can't plan for. And so you have to uh, you have to be able to be dynamic, and uh, you have to be able to change uh, your course if you need to, and you have to uh, put people first uh, when you have to sometimes make you know challenging decisions. Um, you have to think about. Uh, from a personal level, not only taking care of yourself, but taking care of your your team. Um, and I think if you do that, along with the, the good technology that you have, um, you you will be successful. Um, but on a yeah on a day to day basis, again, it's it's similar. Where it used to be very predictable day to day, what I would do, how it would go. I could you know I was doing strategic plans that were you know um, several years out, and you know they were pretty good, and we would be pretty close to that. And, uh, you know, when you're working in a small business, you know, your, your, uh, Wi-Fi goes down all of a sudden you're, a uh, an IT provider. Um, you know, someone doesn't come to work because they're sick and you're, you're a machine operator for the day. So, um, you know, you know, definitely wearing a lot more hats, uh, which is, which is exciting. Um, and, uh, can be challenging at times as well. And so just kind of two final questions. So the first one being kind of, as you reflect on your own career, and I mean, it's certainly not kind of right in the middle of it, but what what advice would you give folks just starting out in the additive manufacturing space? Are there any kind of nuggets of wisdom that you wish you to would have known kind of as you started kind of early on in, in aerospace and then some of the big companies and even starting your own company? Yeah, I think something really important in additive is that although there are a few people that have been in additive for a long time and have spent you know, long careers focused on additive and were some of the early inventors. Most of the people in the space are relatively new. Um, so don't be afraid to take that leap of faith into additive. Don't be afraid to show up at women in 3D printing events or uh, any other type of networking events in the space, because you'll find many people in additive at this point have made, a, I always say, a right turn into additive. Um, you know, you have aerospace engineers that, you know, 10 years ago, I, I would have never thought that I would be in, in this industry. Um, and a lot of people are like that. They were working something else and then they they sort of made a turn. Um, you know, now it's becoming a little bit different because there's actually, you know, full degree programs in, in the space. Um, but I just think it's important for people to not uh, shy away from 
participating and growing and even submitting abstracts for conferences because they don't think that they're, um, you know, expert enough to be there because um, many of us are not experts enough to be here. We've all sort of made that, that change of course at some point to get here. And uh, so that, that's the biggest piece of advice is, um, and, you know, I went through that early on. It's like, well, I'm no additive expert, you know, I'm just sort of getting in. It's like, no, actually I am, you know, there's, you know, you, just because you haven't been doing it for 20 years doesn't mean that, that you don't, you don't know anything um, and, and you pave your own way. So um, that would be, I think my biggest advice. Awesome. And so last question, kind of as we're kind of getting into that conference season, um, what are you excited about for kind of the rest of the year, kind of 2022 and, and onwards? So as you know, I'm a people person. I'm so excited to be back in action and, and seeing friends that I haven't seen. I got to see some over the past year, but not the same as it used to be. So I expect um, a lot of hugs um, and a lot of fun coming up and a lot of sharing about technology. We're going to be sharing some new things that we're working on in Form Alloy, and I can't wait to hear what all of our uh, friends and even competitors are doing too, as we all work together to sort of move, you know, move additive forward and, and keep it going. Awesome. Well, Melanie, thank you so much for the time today, sharing your story. And uh, we look for all those exciting announcements and seeing you at some of these conferences and, and events coming up. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mike.